The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, when I was a kid, this um, daily, actually, um, this, this package of sorts used to be delivered to my house. We called it a newspaper. And if, if you're too young to, to remember what that is, um, it, it was this thing. Imagine if we printed off the Journal Star, like on a, a ream of paper, and we like dropped it at your front door. This is, this is what the newspaper was. And I know a, a lot of us, are, we still receive the newspaper. Um, the best day to get the newspaper is what day? Sunday, right? Because the Sunday newspaper is fat and thick, and in the fall, it has... All the, all the insight and statistics from the Husker game, right? But what else, what else do we find in the Sunday paper? What is unique to the Sunday paper? The comics, the funny pages. I loved the comics when I was a kid. And so I would go to the, I'm sure my parents hated it because I would, I would uh, rush to the paper, kind of tear it apart, right? Get the pages all out of order and, and snag for myself that, um, the, 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 the comics, the, the funny pages. And I would look for my favorite comics, Garfield, Dagwood, Beetle Bailey. Do you remember Beetle Bailey? Love Beetle Bailey. Family Circus, um, big Family Circus fan. Uh, there was this thing called Sherlock Fox where there was a mystery that you had to help to solve. That was fun. But uh, another thing that was in the funny pages every week was a drawing tutorial. A drawing tutorial. I'm, I'm not an artist a, at all, and so I, I found these drawing tutorials kind of interesting because what they would do is they would, they would take a task, something relatively broad and complex, and they would break it down into more specific, simple steps. And so, for example, how to draw a frog. Now, if you came to me and said, Adam, draw me a frog, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to do next because I, I'm not sure I could draw lines on a paper and make them look like a frog without some help. But what if you had a tutorial to say, actually, if you just draw a square here and a triangle here and a couple of rectangles here and add on some feet and a smiley face, all of a sudden, now you have a frog. And so in a sense... I think that's what Paul is going to do for us in this passage this morning. In particular, he's going to tell us with increasing specificity how to walk in line with the command that he gave us at the end of last week's passage. A a, a command that was kind of big and hairy, a little bit broad. He's going to break that down into more specific kind of simple statements for us. And so we need to revisit that command in verse 11 of Romans. But before we do, uh, let's do a little review and remind ourselves of of the broader context of today's passage, which is absolutely connected to last week's passage and, of course, everything that we've covered thus far in Romans 1 through 6. One of the the important things, especially as you're reading through a letter, an epistle like Romans, Paul's letter to the, the Christians in Rome, it's, it's important that we, don't, that we don't forget the context, that we don't isolate a passage, remove it from its 
its original intended uh, context. And so, if you remember, last week's passage was essentially an answer to a question. We, We saw this question asked by Paul in verse 1. He says, well, what should we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? And of course, this is a question, as we saw last week, that tends to arise naturally when you begin to unpack some of the implications of the gospel, in particular, the doctrine of justification, as Paul has been doing the last few chapters. And remember, to be justified is what? It's to be counted righteous or to be given right standing before God. And this this isn't a condition that waxes or wanes with our behavior. I think Alyssa pointed that out to us uh, in in, in the liturgy this morning. It's not a condition that waxes or wanes with your behavior It's not a condition that depends upon your ability to follow a moral code or a certain set of rules or religious regulations. Justification for those who are in Christ by faith is is sure. It's once and for all. It's forever. You can't undo it and you can't reverse it. And that's because... Praise God, it wasn't accomplished by you, was it? Our justification isn't something that we accomplish on our own. It's not even something that we accomplish with God's help. But it's something that is accomplished 100% on our behalf by another in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his finished work upon the cross. And so, again, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've been united to him by faith, and this means that your salvation is secure and that your salvation is secure forever. And this is where the question from verse 1 comes from. And again, it... It seems like, in light of all that we've just unpacked with justification in the gospel, it, it seems like a, person, a, a, a perfectly reasonable question, doesn't it? I mean, considering how justification works, considering the, the once and for all nature of justification. You see, if, if salvation is secure, once and for all, by grace, through faith in Jesus and not by works, then why not have our cake and eat it too? An expression, by the way, that makes no sense to me, but you know what I mean. Why, why, not, why not have our cake and eat it too? Why not keep on sinning and receive more and more and more grace as a result? And I don't know, maybe have a few thrills along the way. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what is, what is Paul's answer to the question? No, no, it's an emphatic no, which he then follows with a long list of two kinds of statements. You didn't know there was going to be a quiz, did you? English time. Two kinds of statements, indicatives and imperatives. Do you remember the difference between these two? Indicative statements are statements of truth. It's, it's a statement of what is true. Imperatives then are different 
in that they are commands. An imperative is something that we are being called to do. And so an, an indicative, a statement of truth, an imperative is a, a command, something that we are being called to do. Now, it's, it's critical that we pay attention to these, to these two and their relationship with one another, not just as we read this passage, not just as we read Romans 6 or even the book of Romans. This is like one of the greatest like pro tips I can give you for reading your Bibles. Pay attention to the indicatives. Pay attention to the imperatives. You see, rarely, if ever, will you see an imperative command in the Bible that isn't also accompanied by an indicative statement of truth. An indicative statement of truth about who God is. An indicative statement of truth about what God has done an indicative statement of truth about who we are because of it. And we see, as Pastor Todd pointed out last week, that it's these statements of truth that precede the imperative commands. And, and in fact, they actually fuel our obedience to these commands, to the imperative commands. And so to, to put it another way, the truth about who God is, what he has done, and who I am because of it determines and fuels what I do. And so last week's passage, after the question and answer, Paul followed this with a long list of indicatives, a long list of statement of, of, of truths. He says that, Paul says that to be united to Jesus by faith is to be united with him in his death. He says that our old self was crucified. He said that we are no longer enslaved to sin, but rather that we've been set free from it. Not only that, but to be united with Jesus by faith is to be united with him, not just in his, his death, but also in his resurrection. And as we do, we, we walk in the newness of life. And so, another indicative truth is not only are we dead to sin if we're in Christ, but we're also made truly alive in Him. This is the, the list of indicative statements of truth that Paul gave us. And he followed this. He ended this 11-verse passage with a single imperative in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is where the drawing tutorial comes in. What does this mean? What, what does this mean? How does one consider himself to be dead to sin? How does one consider herself to be alive to God? Surely this isn't some kind of theoretical mind exercise. So what does it look like? How does this play out, practically speaking, in our lives? And what I think Paul is going to tell us in our three verses today is is just that. And he's going to do so kind of in the opposite way that he did in the, the first 11 verses. The first 11 verses had a bunch of indicatives with one imperative command. In this passage, we have multiple imperative commands followed by one single but all-important indicative. And as he 
unpacks these imperative commands, we're going to see them grow increasingly more specific, much like the tutorial in the, in the funny pages. And we'll see if, possibly, by the time we're done with this, we might have something that resembles something that looks like a frog, metaphorically speaking. Um, and so let's begin with the imperative commands. Uh, Paul begins with two negative commands. The, the first is this in verse 12. He says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. This phrase, mortal body here, I, I don't think that it's just talking about the physical body, the, the physical body that you can kind of touch and, and, and feel. Like it, it certainly does mean the physical body. I think that it's no less than the physical body. But I do think that more is intended by this phrase, mortal body. What he's talking about here is the whole person, your, your whole self, your, your whole self with which you interact with the world around you, your, your mind, your soul, your body. One theologian says that the word body is not to be taken for flesh and skin and bones, but, so to speak, for the whole of what man is. And so he begins broadly by referring to the, the whole of what you and I are as human beings. And Paul says, don't let sin reign in you. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let sin, uh, sin reign in your whole self, not in your mind, not in your heart, not in your body. He's calling the Roman Christians and us too to, to rise up against sin this morning. He's saying, resist it. Don't let it rule over you. Sin, he tells us at the end of this verse, it's, and this is, this is our experience as well, isn't it? Sin is, it's an unforgiving taskmaster. It's an unforgiving taskmaster taskmaster. It's, it's, it's a brutal dictator. That's because when sin reigns, it makes you obey its passions. Its fleshly lusts control you. Its insatiable appetite, it drives you. Its desires, they, they motivate you. Motivate you to do things like worship others instead of the one true God or, or to make a, a small g God for yourself in your own image. Sin, it, it makes you obey its passions. To, to curse the name of the Lord instead of bless it. To be consumed with self and to hate and despise others. To take what doesn't belong to you. And what belongs to others, to lie and cheat, to dominate and subjugate and objectify others, to seek worldly pleasures without limits. And so Paul says, brothers and sisters, don't let sin reign. Don't let sin's passions, which are categorically opposed to God and the things of God, control you. But notice, he doesn't just say, don't let sin reign. 
Don't let sin control you. There, there's another word there that, that we can't miss because if we do, this command of Paul's is going to seem unreasonable, if not impossible. He says, do not let sin, therefore, do not let sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. That, that therefore points us back to the previous 11 verses of chapter 6 with all of its indicatives. Paul is saying, in light of all of those things that are true, therefore, don't let sin reign. And what was the conclusion of those 11 verses? Where did we land last week? But but to say, consider yourself what to sin? Dead. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And, in fact... Consider yourself dead to sin because, Christian, you are, in fact, dead to sin. And, Christian, consider yourself alive to God in Christ because, in fact, you were raised to newness of life in Jesus. Paul says, do not let Sin reign, therefore, in your mortal body because for Christians, sin does no longer reign in our mortal bodies. It has no right to you, no claim to you. Its power over you and its grip upon you has been broken. The chains of bondage have been burst open. Its tyrannical reign and rule has been overthrown. Sin's regime, it's been conquered. And so Paul is merely calling us to walk in light of this magnificent truth. And he says, don't let this has-been dictator regime control you to make it obey, to make you to obey its passions. It has no power over you. Paul continues with another negative imperative or command. And this time he gets even more specific. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Now again, as in verse 12, mortal bodies. We're talking about more than just the the, the physical body that we can touch. Here, when Paul refers to members, I think he's talking to, to more than just our physical limbs. I think he's talking about more than fingers and arms and 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 legs. He's talking about your capacities. As a person, right? And so the physical body and limbs, yes. Your hands, yes. Your feet, yes. He's he's referring to your feet. Don't present your feet as instruments for unrighteousness. Your, Your eyes and your ears, yes. Your sexual organs, yes. But also your mind. Also, your will, your desires, your personality, your God-given personality, your, your skills, your strengths, your gifts. We're told here not to offer these capacities as instruments for unrighteousness. Now, this word instruments can also be translated, and and if if you're reading, for example, the the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB translation, you'll see there that the 
this word instruments is translated weapons, which I, I like because I think it, it helps us to paint a picture of what Paul is getting at here. I think Paul is using, purposefully using military imagery. You say he, see, he's, he's, he's saying to, to offer our capacities, to give them over to sin is to arm the enemy. But not just that. Because the enemy, once our ruthless master and ruler, he's been overthrown. Verses 1 through 11. Verse 14, which we'll be coming to. So then, to offer the desires of our minds to sin, for example, is to offer weapons to an overthrown enemy regime. An overthrown enemy regime that seeks to destroy and to re-enslave you. Why would anyone do that? Why, why, why would we want to arm the enemy? Imagine being entrenched in war. A war that lasts years and, and you experience great loss. And imagine the joy of that day when the enemy finally waves the white flag and the war has been won. Imagine handing all of your weapons over to the enemy for them to destroy you with. And so Paul's saying, don't do it. Don't don't arm the enemy. If you offer your members, your capacities to sin, it will be used as weapons for unrighteousness. So it's, it's at this point then, in the middle of verse 13, we've just, we've just seen these two negative commands that, that are growing increasingly uh, more specific from one to the other. He's going to move now from negative commands to positive commands. Positive commands that mirror these two negative commands. As commentator Douglas Moo points out, what, what, what Paul is kind of telling us as he makes this transition is this, that there can be no neutral position between service of God and service of sin. And so, for example, in repentance, it's one thing to turn from sin, but we have to be careful that we turn to Jesus. And that's what Paul is calling us to do here in the second half of verse 13. He's calling, he isn't merely calling us to turn from sin, but also he's, he's commanding us to turn to God. His negative command, don't let sin reign, is followed by a positive command. Remember, verse 11, again, remember this. We're alive to God in Christ. And so, in light of that, Paul says, to present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. As a reminder of an indicative statement of truth from verses 1 through 11. Present yourselves to those who have been brought from death to life. Why? How? Because you have, in fact, been brought to death to life in Christ. And he says, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
Commenting on this verse, uh, the 19th century English Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He wrote, He is ready to use you. Lay all the powers of your nature as tools for him to use. Yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead. He is not the God of the dead. He cannot use the dead, but he is the God of the living. And as you profess to have received a new life in Christ, yield up all the faculties of this new life unto the living God and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Back to the military imagery. Sin, the tyrannical enemy dictator, has been overthrown. And what Paul says now is, Yes, reject the reign of this former master. You no longer have to listen to him. You no longer have to obey him. He no longer has authority over you. But using the same categories as in the negative command, he also calls us to offer ourselves and our members, our capacities to God. You see, to reject the reign and rule of an overthrown leader is necessarily to come under the reign and rule of another. So what we don't do is throw off the reign and rule of sin and become radically independent. Rather, to... to, To reject the reign and rule of an overthrown leader is necessarily to come under the reign and rule of another. Anything less, hear this, anything less is to submit yourself once again to the overthrown regime. There is no neutrality with respect to service to God. And so, look, it it's at this point we might be tempted to say something like this. Well, that's, that's great for Paul. <laughs> it's just like, resist sin, give yourself to the Lord. That, well, that sounds, that sounds great for him, but look, I'm not Paul. I'm not an apostle. Last I checked, I haven't penned any of the books in the Bible I don't have his kind of willpower. I'm not as pious as he is. I'm not as holy and righteous as he is. And and furthermore, you don't know me. You don't know what my struggle against sin has looked like. You don't know what it looks like right now. You don't know the, the kind of sin that I struggle with. You don't know how long I've been struggling against it. You don't know what the agony of defeat has felt like. So then, fortunately for us, especially if you find yourself voicing a yeah but that sounds something like one of those statements, fortunately for us, after laying out these imperative commands in verses 12 and 13, Paul once again returns to the indicative, a statement of truth in our final verse. And this This indicative statement in verse 14, it's an exclamation point on this entire passage. It's it's a statement of truth that reminds us that our hope is not in our own ability to pull this off. This is not a call 
to white-knuckling the steering wheel. But it's, it's a call to resting in the finished work of Jesus. He says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. Now, as I read that, I'll be honest, that kind of sounds like a command to me. Like an underhanded threat, right? Sin will have no command over you. Like it, 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 reminds, it reminds me of, of uh, high school wrestling. Our, our crosstown rivals, the Roosevelt Rough Riders, can't make this stuff up. That, that's who they were. The, the Roosevelt Rough Riders were making their way to our gym, and I was set to wrestle Derek Lemke, ranked number two in the state. And we're in the wrestling room, kind of like bouncing upside down, hitting ourselves in the face, trying to get ourselves pumped up, listening to, you know, raging music. And my coach, one of my coaches walks up to me, and he gets this far from my face, and he goes, the only one that gets pinned out there today is him. Now, here's the thing. There was a guy in the, in the weight class right before me that ended up being a state champion that year. And you know what our coach didn't do that day? He didn't get up in Graham's face and say, Graham, the only one who gets pinned out there today is him. Why? Because when, when he said this, it was a command. <laughs> My coach was saying, don't you dare get pinned out there because if you do, we might lose this duel. Now, if you're wondering how the, how the story ends, quick aside. <laughs> Beat him with a takedown in overtime. No big deal. Thank you. But this, this, this statement, it, it, it was a command from my coach. It was a, don't you dare. Verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. This is not a don't you dare. This is a, a sure truth statement. This is our hope. Verse 14 is your destiny in Christ. Sin will have no dominion over you. And because sin will have no dominion over you, Christian, you can do everything that Paul has told us to do in the previous two verses. And what, why won't sin have dominion over you? Prove it, Adam. Well, the answer Paul gives, which is going to set us up for the rest of chapter 6 and lead us into chapter 7, is this. Because you're not under the law now, as one who belongs to Christ, but you're under grace. We're going to read this in the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 5. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, it's a flashback, flashback to our lives without Christ. If you're a Christian, this is a, a flashback to before you were saved. He says, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit 
for death. You see, apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit's living in you and breathing life into your soul, you are under the law and a slave to sin. We read in chapter 3, no one seeks after God, not one. And so, when a good God that we are naturally and sinfully inclined to oppose hands down his good law, what is our knee-jerk reaction going to be? It's like if you tell a kid, Todd and I were just talking about this yesterday, if you, if, if you tell a kid, hey, don't touch that, what does a kid immediately want to do? He's going to run up and touch it. Or imagine two kids. There's a, there's a toy that neither one of them have touched for months. And imagine if one of those kids takes a liking to said toy. This toy that hasn't, hasn't been on either of their minds for, for months. Now all of a sudden, what do they both want? They want the toy. Why? Because they can't have it. This is, this is what our, our sin nature is like. But, but Paul says, um, you're, you're no longer under the law. Now, you're under grace. In Christ, we're, we're new, new creatures. In Christ, we've been given new passions and new affections. Instead of desiring to oppose God's good law, we desire to walk in it, to, to walk in, in obedience to God's will for us. Our passions, they're no longer against God. They're, they're for God. And not only that, but we're indwelled by His Holy Spirit. God Himself takes up residence in us. And not only that, He's not just like hanging out, but He's giving us power. He's giving us power for our fight with sin. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is going to say that the power that the Spirit works in us is the exact same power that rose a crucified Christ from the grave. That's why sin will have no dominion over you because resurrection power is at work in you through the Spirit that lives in you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. Christian, because of this power, you have new potential in Christ. You may not have realized that potential. You might not see that potential, but the new potential in Christ is there. And then finally, because you're no longer under the law, you're free from the condemnation of the law. There's no condemnation for you. Therefore, Paul will say in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for you. Only the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and on top of all of this, as the great prophet Stephen Covey would have us remember this morning, Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in sight, right? This is a, this is a Stephen Covey-ism. He's a, a productivity guru. He says, begin with the end. I'm probably butchering exactly how he phrases it, but he's saying, look, as you're setting out to do something, begin with the end in sight. And, and Paul, in, in his letter to the Philippians, promises us that the, the work that God has started in us, he will carry out to completion. 
And so sin will have no dominion over you, Christian. That's not a threat. That's a promise. Because you're a new creature in Christ with a new relationship to law and sin. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you and works resurrection power in you. Because you're free from condemnation. And because God started a good work in you and he always finishes what he starts. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. And so here's what I want to do now, briefly with the the, the few minutes we have remaining. I want to give us a few points of application to equip us in our struggle with sin. Five points, in fact. The first point of application is this. The gospel doesn't eliminate responsibility. This passage is a really good reminder of that. Sin will have no dominion over you. That's a a definitive statement of truth, a truth that can't and won't be undone. Make no mistake about that. And yet, we still have a responsibility to walk out obedience. Paul still says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. He still says, don't give your members to sin who will weaponize them for unrighteousness. So we have a a responsibility in light of the truth of the indicative to walk in obedience to the imperative, to present our members to God for righteousness and not to sin for unrighteousness. We we have to beware of a let go and let God mentality or an apathetic attitude towards a battling of sin, an apathetic licentiousness that says, well, maybe I should just have my cake and eat it too and have a couple of nice thrills along the way. Number two, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. One observation that we have to make from this passage is that struggle is implied here, is it not? Struggle is implied. You see, while the Christian has been set free from the power of sin, from the tyrannical reign of sin, he or she hasn't been set free from the presence of sin. Sin still resides in us. We call this indwelling sin, and indwelling sin is a very real thing. Not only that, but sin dwells out there too. And so then, just because sin no longer reigns in our body, just because it will not have dominion over us, it doesn't mean that we won't struggle with it. Just because we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ doesn't mean that we won't have to fight temptation. I mean, look, look why would Paul warn the Roman Christians against their giving of their, their members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness if they weren't going to be tempted to do so. And so if, if you find yourself kind of entrenched in the struggle, understand that, that that doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean that God is woefully disappointed in you because the struggle is real. Temptation 
and even, hear this, temptation and even falling into sin, these things are still possible for the Christian. The struggle is real. But thirdly, you are not powerless in the struggle. You are not powerless against sin. If you're united to Christ by faith, you do have a choice. If you're a Christian, you're you're dead to sin. So sin will have no dominion over you. Sin cannot force you into submission. But it will lie to you. It will tell you that failure is inevitable. Sin will tell you a different list of indicative truths. And they're all lies from the pit of hell. You can resist. You can cast off the reign of sin. You can not give your instruments as, uh, you, you cannot give, give your capacities as instruments for unrighteousness. You, you can give them to God for instruments of righteousness. Failure is not inevitable. You can resist. Thirdly, think obedience and not victory. Think obedience, not victory. Let me be clear what, about what I'm saying here, what I'm not saying here. Uh, oftentimes, when we talk about our struggle with sin, we like to say things like this. I had a lot of victory over that sin this week. Or, conversely, I'm just not experiencing a lot of victory in that area of my life right now. Remember. Remember that a once and for all victory over sin has already been won. It is not your job or responsibility to take the, to take the ball in the fourth quarter and drive down and score the winning touchdown. Victory has already been won. Victory has already been secured. And so rest in victory, don't work for it. And instead... Let's talk about sin increasingly in terms of of obedience. That's what Paul is, is, is saying here. He's saying, victory has been won for you, Christian. Therefore, walk in obedience to these truths. It's a a Godward way to talk about sin as opposed to a me-centric way to talk about sin. And and look, that that doesn't mean that elsewhere in Scripture we don't see metaphors that kind of lead us down this path of victory. But but we can't forget as we're battling against sin that the victory has been won for us in terms of the power of sin. Lastly, don't arm the enemy. And this is this is one I hope we get to talk about in our gospel communities this week. This is one that I hope you will think on this week as well. You meditate upon. Are there ways that you are presenting yourself or your members, your capacities, to sin? as weapons of unrighteousness? Are there ways that you're presenting your body, your mind and your thoughts, your heart and your desires and your passions and your gifts and strengths and abilities? Are there ways in which you are presenting yourself or your members to sin as weapons of righteousness? And and, uh, Second sub-question under that, how how are you presenting yourself and your members to God as instruments for righteousness? Elsewhere in the Bible, we we read this this language of 
taking off, putting off the old man and putting on the new self. This is a daily thing. How, how are you daily, intentionally seeking to present yourself and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness? And so, to wrap up here, let, let's summarize Paul's tutorial. How do we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God and Christ Jesus? How do we walk this out? How do we draw something that begins to resemble a frog? Well, first of all, we refuse to allow sin, whose dominion has been overthrown, to reign in our bodies. We, we refuse to give ourselves and our capacities as weapons to sin. And we give our whole selves including our members and our capacities instead to God as weapons for righteousness. And we do this all the while, remembering the truth that anchors and fuels it all. Because if we forget this truth, it's like trying to draw a frog without a pencil. The truth is this, it's sin. Brothers and sisters, sin will have no dominion over you. You are dead to sin. You are not under the law, but you are under the glorious grace of our God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning for your victory. Your victory over sin, death, and Satan. And we thank you, Lord, that your victory through union with your Son has become our victory. Lord, impress upon us the sure truth of this victory that is ours in him and empower our obedience as we set out to walk in light of it. Lord, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.